All right, good morning, wonderful family. My name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy and a delight to be with you this morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday, um, where we gladly watch five hours of TV for 11 minutes of actual live play. Um, America, right? This is how we do entertainment. Let's make it as long as possible so we can eat as many snacks as possible. And I've got to say, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um, And go Chiefs, all right? Uh, It's the Lord's will. We are in week four of a five-part series that we have called God Loves. The premise essentially is a simple one, is that God is a loving creator, that he's not aloof and far off, that he's involved in his creation, and he invites his image bearers, his children, you and I, into a life of love in which we get to share the love that he has for us with others. And so we are loved people who love other People. Now, now, if we're going to do that right, we ought to pause and ask, if we're going to respond to the love of God, then we've got to love what he loves. And that's really been the premise of this short series. It's obviously not comprehensive coverage. There are going to be many things that God loves that we don't cover this time around. But what we have said so far is that God loves you And so you should love you too, right? In a God-honoring way, recognizing his image bearing upon you and the dignity, worth, value, and purpose that he placed in you. Yes, even you, right? And he loves you, adores you. Secondly, we said God loves life. And so we ought to love life. We ought to be defenders of life from the womb to the tomb. Christians should be people who stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves as a celebration of their image bearing. Not us just saying, I'm an image bearer, saying, well, everyone then created uh, as a human is an image bearer and is worthy of our love and our defense. And then last week we said, and God loves our neighbor, even the annoying one, perhaps especially the annoying one. He wants to press that into our hearts and say, you have a call to go and love your neighbor as well. Today, we want to drill down on that concept a little bit. We want to examine how God doesn't just love people as an amorphous mass, right? So even this word neighbor, you can double click on and it gets into some subgroups of people. He doesn't love people just as a general collective. He loves actually the universe of relationship that he puts us in. He places us amongst other people and he does that for a reason because he loves relationships. And so this morning we'll focus on families and next week we'll focus on friendships. If I could redo it, I'd probably do it the other way around because I think friendship is a necessary component of family. Um, But just Bear with me as we solve this in lifetime, right? This is not in my notes and unhelpful uh, just letting my thoughts escape into the atmos. Um, But uh, family is necessary for friendship. And so come next week, and I mean, friendship is necessary for family and the other way around. Um, And so come next week as we tie this all together or just come back to the 1115 where I leave that whole part out. Um, But God (laughs) loves relationships. And so today, family, next week, Friendship. Part of the reason that God loves relationship, listen, this blew my mind when I first discovered this, is that he is an ongoing relationship himself. Not he is in an ongoing relationship himself. He is an existing, ongoing relationship. God is one. The Bible is clear. But in his oneness, there is an ongoing relationship, a dance, a union between the persons of the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You guys all get that? 
I don't, um, and it's magnificent to consider how God, even in, when he imprints that upon us, prints that dance, that union, that relationship into us. This is why in the glorious um, creation account poem that we have in Genesis, and it is a poem, um, which we're gonna spend a bit of time in today, there is this language. Look with me at Genesis 1, uh, 26. It said, then God said, and look at it with fresh eyes, just look at words that jump out at you, let us, right? This is not some strange moment of incorrect plurality for God. Let us make man in our image. There's this ongoing union in the Trinity, and part of what it means to be human is to be made in, the, in that image, that dance, that union, that relationship, according to our likeness. They Humans, not just one, a plurality, will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. Then look at this. He created them, male and female. Uh, Listen to this. This blew my mind when I first saw this because the ongoing implications for our life and for the way we structure our lives are actually incredible. There is a community and a complementarity that is necessary in order for us to be proper image bearers of the divine. I'll say that again, because that'll preach. None of you tweeted that out, and that is good. There is a community and a complementarity that is necessary in order for us to be proper image bearers of the divine. We need others around us, but not just others around us, others who are like us, but not like us, in order to experience and to reflect the divine imprint that is placed uniquely on human beings and breathed uniquely into human beings as image bearers. This speaks, friends, listen. This is at the root of the ache that we all have. This speaks of the deep need that is in us to be in relationship with other people. We all desire it, albeit we may desire it differently. Even extreme introverts desire it. You know that? You might be going, Ross, I actually just want to be on my own, right? But what I've discovered with introversion, now that I've studied it a little bit, is even in my most introverted moment, which can be a pretty dark space, right? Where I persuade myself, I just want to be alone. You know what I really want? I want to be alone with other people. I want to be free to be alone with other people around who just don't engage with me, but who are around, right? So even in extreme introversion, there is a desire for relationship because how would you build a relationship where people are loving and kind enough with you to let you be alone with them? You will have to know them and they will have to know you. And it's that intimacy, it's that relationship that is at the heart of all of our desires. This is the reason, friends, that solitary confinement is a cruel punishment, Have you thought about this? Why is like one of the cruelest things you can do to a prisoner, make them be on their own? On first glance, I go like, that sounds amazing. And yet speak to people who have been through it. I was listening to a podcast um, this last week of uh, of a guy who spent 26 years in prison and a lot of that in solitary confinement. And he spoke of the insanity that it will drive you to. Why? We have an ache. We have a design in us to be in relationship with other people. And when that is taken away from us, our souls are so restless and disquieted and sad and lost as a result. This hint of this ache in Genesis 1 becomes explicit 
in Genesis 2, when the account digs into this in a little more detail. Go to Genesis 2.15. It said, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And so guys, we've had yard work from the first day. There's just nothing we can do about it, right? And the Lord commanded the man, you are free. How's that for a first commandment? You are free. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, this is the first part that we see God kind of reflective in creation. Everything else, he's just spoken into being and it's been magnificent. But at this point, he has pause. He watches Adam roam around the garden. He goes, hmm, hmm. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The ESV says suitable for him. I like where the CSB goes with this corresponding to him. I'll explain that why in a second. There it is. We need community and we need complementarity in order to reflect and fulfill the good desire that God has for us. The word therefore corresponding helper is a word that has plagued translators for centuries. It is a paradox of a word that speaks of something that is like against And so God says, not good for the man to be alone. You know what he needs? He needs someone who is like him and kind of against him, right? Like him, but not like him at all. That's what he needs, community and complementarity. It is like a corresponding puzzle piece in that it is like, in that it makes up a picture, but it is against in that it needs to be different from the first piece in order to fit. And if you've been in any kind of relationship for any length of time, you're going, Oh, right? She's like against, I get it. She's like me, but not at all like me, right? And so you can start to understand God's good design in relationships those ways. And so friends, listen, other people aren't like you, not just because they're fools, not just because of their annoying rebellion, but also by God's good design for his purposes to be fulfilled in your life. He places people around you who are like against you right? For your own flourishing, because you purely on your own would not be a good thing. Now listen, I can feel some of you tensing up already. I want to add something here. I want to say the text does not say, listen, or imply that it is not good for a person to be single. It says it is not good for a person to be alone in a prolonged state of isolation. The Bible actually tells us the opposite. You know, the Bible celebrates singleness as the highest standing in the Christian life. Now, I know some of us will go like, well, that's not my experience. I understand, I do. But, but, but I would be lying to you if I didn't point out to you that the Bible actually celebrates it as the hero's in the church, as does the life of Jesus, right? If we're gonna say that a single life isn't a fulfilled life, then we have to say the person who lived the most fulfilled life in the history of the world somehow missed out because he never had that kind of uh, relationship. He had relationship all around him. He wasn't alone and yet he lived as a single man. The Bible says that aloneness, isolation, separation from like against relationship with others is not good. It is insufficient in terms of our ability to image God back to him. And so friends, this need, this desire unfolds throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. I don't have time today, but let me give you the headlines. Let me walk you right through scripture to show you this. God deals with individuals and he loves them and he works through them, but always in the context of their relationships with other people. We see no truly isolated people in a good sense in the biblical narrative. Adam, 
Well, it's not good for him to be alone. What does he give him? A wife and a family unit and a lineage. Noah, who, who does God save? Well, a family unit shuts them in um, with their menagerie um, of animals. Abraham, what is Abraham's promise? You will have a people. I will put people in your lineage. Israel, what are they? They're a people. What are they made up of? Tribes and clans and family units. What about Jesus? Jesus lives in community as a single man, but he's born into a family and he loves that family and he does ministry with friends and he affirms and upholds the law's high standard of teachings on family and he expands the sense of what family is and could be which is where we'll finish today what about the new testament well they're written to churches communities families people in relationship with other people what about heaven i've got bad news for the introverts heaven is people in community for all time Now, we are told we're getting a room, and I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful for that. And I don't think it's going to be like when you go to the convention, you discover, like, I'm sharing with someone. Um, And so I'm going to have a roommate for all eternity. I hope that's not the case. I haven't done an in-depth study of the nature of my room. But I do think I'm going to have a little space for myself. But for all eternity, with other people in an ongoing family, right? The Scripture shows this as a good impulse. And yet, we know and experience the tension that says that we deeply desire relationship and meaningful community and connection with others. But all the while, what do we do? We struggle to attain it. And the things that are supposed to give us life land up being some of our greatest sources of grief, of angst, of pain, and ironically, of loneliness and isolation. Think about the things that cause you stress in your life. Most of them have to do with other people. The things that are supposed to give you the sense of image bearing end up giving you the greatest sense of the fallenness and lostness of man. We need need relationships, but we don't know how to make them work properly. And so even as you walk back through that biblical theology, you know that none of that stuff worked out, right? The way it was supposed to. Adam and Eve, they get a family and the sons... Don't get along, right? Noah, Noah's family is so stressful that after being on a boat with him for a long time, he starts day drinking and that doesn't go particularly well. Abraham, oy vey, right? Israel, disaster. Jesus and his 12 friends, not brilliant, right? Okay, and there were things around him that were difficult. His own brother didn't believe he was the Messiah, right? His, his mother thought that he had gone too far at a point. The New Testament churches, well, the letters are there basically to say, please get along, Please stop fighting. Please get along better than you are. And hopefully in heaven, all of that will be behind us. But friends, we know that we've got this tension. We need community. We can't make it work. We need relationship. And, it's, and it stings and it hurts and it's fractured. N.T. Wright said, from the most intimate relationship to those on the largest scale, we find the same thing. We all know that we are made to live together, but we all find that doing so is more difficult than we had imagined. And it is within these settings that we find the natural characteristic signs of human life. Laughter and tears. We find each other funny and we find each other tragic. We find ourselves and our relationships funny and tragic. This is who we are. Welcome to the tension, everybody. Sin impacts us not just individually but collectively, relationally. And yet we still crave relationship and long for the comfort it brings, even at risk of the great pain that we know that it will cause because of sin. This morning, I want to look briefly 
at how no human relationships highlight this tension so strongly or so starkly as family relationships. The people we are meant to be closest with are those who can injure us with the deepest wounds. And we all carry them to some extent. All of us have some family wounds, some of them way worse than others, to be fair. But we all walk with limps caused by our family, some of us for our whole lives. And so before I get into God's design and and his impulse for families today, just a couple of disclaimers. I know that for some of you, there is a hope of some sort of nuclear family of your own that is yet unrealized. I understand that. For some of you, there is a very different plan of close relationship that the Bible would call family that God has for you, but it's different from the typical church mold of spouse and two and a half kids. I, I understand that. For some of you, there is pain even at the mention of this topic that is unimaginable. I know. For some of you, there is loss. For some of you, there's even regret and conviction at the loss and the pain that you yourself have caused. I understand that. And so I want to be as gentle and pastorally loving as possible today, but please don't do this. Now, I've noticed this more and more in church. Don't zone out if you feel like some of the things today don't apply perfectly to your life. Don't go like, well, if I'm not currently in a stage where I have a spouse and two and a half kids, this sermon's not for me. No, no, God is going to teach us some principles today that I think are for all of us. The principles remain true. And there is grace and space for so many manifestations of how we can grow these principles of God's and apply them to wherever we are. You see, everyone has family. Some of us just have terrible ones or absent ones or distant ones. But everyone was born through a bloodline of sorts. And so everyone has an experience of family. For some, it's just bad. But everyone in faith is family. And so this can be applied to our church community and how we treat one another as friends and, and, and fellow sojourners in our walk of faith. Everyone has family and everyone is family. And so these apply to all of us. Okay, three things today. Um, I made them all start with the same letter because alliteration is king. And hopefully it'll be memorable for you today as you watch the Chiefs win. First one. God gifts us. Here's the premise in there, hidden in there. Family is a gift. I know we experience its curse, but its actual structure is a gift. God gifts us families as pictures of who he is. Secondly, God gifts us families as places for flourishing and growth. Don't worry, I'll I'll explain each of these points if you're taking notes. And lastly, God gifts us families as platforms for kingdom advance. First one. God gives us families as pictures of who he is. Now, I know if I say the sentence that has the word family and picture in the same sentence, some of you bust out in hives, right? Am I right? Because is there anything in the world more stressful or more deceitful than family photos? I don't know of a single thing that is both as stressful and as blatantly deceitful as wrangling your family together, pretending that they weren't trying to murder each other moments before, taking one last sip on the magic juice hidden in your Yeti, placing it behind the rock, and then standing in the midst of flowers that you hope aren't infected with snakes and bugs for the one magic shot out of a thousand that you can put on social media and go, look at me. (laughs) Killing it dominion, right? All of the shots afterwards are just chaos and snot and tears and measles outbreaks and all sorts of things. 
but we have that family picture. But right throughout the scriptures, the importance of family are highlighted. And one of the reasons for that, listen, this is amazing, is God actually attaches himself to the picture of family and how we understand him, how he works. He attaches who he is and how he works to a metaphor of family. He does this all the time and he's not ashamed to do so. He does this through metaphors of marriage, right? Right throughout the Bible where God's people are seen as an unfaithful spouse and God is a loving and patient one who pursues them nonetheless. Where Jesus is the groom and the church is a bride loved by him, presented to him as holy and blameless and lovely. And God takes covenantal love so seriously in part because it speaks to his own covenantal love of us, us which he will not break or back down from. And he calls us then to have the kinds of marriages that paint that picture. That if people were to ask us, what is God's love like? We could say in a part, it is like this covenantal love that you see manifested before you. He attaches himself willingly to this metaphor. And that's why he's so passionate and, 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 and caring about, hey, be careful before you break one of these apart, right? And there can be healing after that. Of course there can, but be careful. Because I'm attaching the way I love my people to the image that this represents. In Ephesians 5, Paul goes through this whole thing. And then in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. Speaking, you think speaking of marriage. And then he goes, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says, it's so enmeshed there. Jesus loves the church like a husband loves his wife. And he's willing to be associated with that metaphor. It is an apologetic of his love. And commitment. Tim Keller in his amazing book, Meaning of Marriage, said, When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. He attaches himself to that metaphor. They are metaphors of parenting. Right throughout the scripture, God consistently refers to himself as a father. And we, his people, as his children, all functioning together in a giant family. Psalm 103, Jimmy read it this morning, says he has compassion on us like a good dad. Luke 11 says that he's such a good dad that we know he knows what we need before we even ask him. In Ephesians 2, um, Paul tells us that he gives us free and ready access to him through the Holy Spirit because he is a good dad. In Hebrews 12, we are told he disciplines and corrects us like a loving father. In 1 John 3, we are told he loves us. Why? He's a good dad, and he loves us in that way. Just so you know, God attaches himself freely to images of mothering as well. Okay, this is not a branch away from complementarianism. You don't need to foam at the mouth and saying, are you saying God is female? No, I'm saying he attaches himself to images of mothering. Full stop, right? Um, Let's look at some of them. In Hosea 11, God says that it was he who raised and fed his children like a mother would do for young kids. In Isaiah 66, it says that that God will comfort his children like a mother comforts uh, the young. In Isaiah 49, we're told that God willingly compares himself to a nursing mom, nursing an infant. In Matthew 23, Jesus says he is like a mother hen, longing to gather his young under his wings. Here's the point. God gives us family as a picture, as an image, something we can look to in order to have a greater understanding of God's love and commitment. Now, for many here, listen, I know This hasn't been the case for you. 
and just the thought of the picture of your family and what it represents is painful, I know. Here's the question with where you are today. What picture are you currently painting with the families that God has you in? What does it look like to the rest of the world? What does it show of his love and of his kindness and of his humility and of his gentleness and of his mercy and of his grace? What does it say? If you are married, are you creating something that would resemble a picture of God's love and faithfulness? If you have kids, are you creating a space that speaks of God's love and God's grace and God's long-suffering for his children? Are you doing that? I can't possibly cover every scenario, so I'm going to ask you to cover it for yourself. But I'm asking this question, not just of the family that currently lives in my home. This question has, has, has provoked me this week to thought. But what picture am I painting with my, my parents and my in-laws, with my siblings, and with the church family that God has given me? What picture do I paint to the world with the people that God has entrusted to me? All right, so firstly... That's a picture. Secondly, God gifts us families as places. Places of what? Flourishing and growth. Back to the garden in the beginning. Look at what God says to the newly created couple. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Look at the first thing he does. And he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that, that, that uh, crawls on the earth. The impulse of the created family unit is blessing and flourishing, ruling and subduing in the world, bringing forth meaningful work and purpose as a result. Now again, we know that the world has fallen. It wasn't long till sin entered that story and Adam and Eve were fighting and their offspring were murdering each other, but still flourishing. Listen. This is big. Your family is not just a default that you happen to inherit. Flourishing is the purpose of family. Even if that purpose isn't fully or always realized in our lives. When I think of family, my, mind's, my mind goes to two psalms in the section of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. It's a pair of psalms. They, they're a couplet. They go together. Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. And they speak of flourishing families. And there's a warning at the beginning of Psalm 127. I love it. It says, there is a danger in a life where we spend all our time working in anxious toil and find ourselves dissatisfied with the bread that the toil provides. <laughs> Does this describe any of our lives? Up early, still up late, working ourselves to the bone so we can get a paycheck and the paycheck doesn't make us happy, right? There's no flourishing in and of that pursuit itself. But in 128, the psalmist says that one of the ways to avoid that sense of fruitlessness from our lives is in the pursuit of a flourishing family unit, whatever that might look like. The example that he gives is an image that I have in my head all the time. Well, I try to have in my head all the time when I'm in my house. It says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like young olive trees around your table. My kids are so tired of hearing this that when we gather around the table, I say, come on, young olive trees. They're like, Dad, that is the weirdest thing ever. I'm like, it's in the Bible, all right? Just be good pastors, kids, and, and just pretend, um, okay? And so your, your, your young olive trees around your table, in this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. I love these images, a fruitful vine growing 
strengthened, productive, makes wine. I like it. Young olive trees, nurtured, full of potential, reaching up for the sky and finding the air warm and welcoming and the soil beneath their feet rich and stabilizing. Friends, are we creating environments of fruitful vines and young olive trees for them to grow up and flourish? A couple of weeks ago, I got a text from my brother and uh, he's got some family wounds. We've got four-year gaps between each sibling because my parents were insane. So four kids with a four-year gap between each one, right? And so let's have kids for two decades. That sounds like a great idea. Um, and, and, and what that means is we had very different experiences of our family growing up, right? Because our family went through different seasons. And so my brother's eight, nearly nine years older than me. And so he's got some different experiences of the family, but we've got some similar experiences as well. And he said, if you watch Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show, I was like, I've got a religion that says I can't watch any Broadway show, actually. Um, it's a made-up religion that says Broadway shows are dumb. He said, no, but watch the, the Springsteen one. And so I said, okay, I will, because I love the boss, right? He's called the boss for a reason. And I watched the Springsteen show, and I, and I got to the song called Long Time Coming, which I knew was about his dad. And he made some introductory remarks to the song Long Time Coming that stopped me in my tracks, and I've been thinking about them for weeks. Look at what Springsteen said. No, he's not a theologian. This is profound, right? Uh, Springsteen said, we are ghosts or we are ancestors in our children's lives. We either lay our mistakes and our burdens upon them and haunt them as ghosts, or we assist them in laying those old burdens down, and we free them from the chains of our own flawed behavior, and as ancestors, we walk alongside of them, assisting them to find their own way and some form of transcendence. Ghosts haunting or ancestors assisting. Are you a place of flourishing and growth for those that God has placed around you? Are there flourishing vines and the potential of young olive trees because of your presence? Or are you a ghost, haunting, placing your sin upon the shoulders of others? Okay, families are pictures of God's love. They're places of God's flourishing. Lastly, God gifts us families as platforms for kingdom advance. The instructions given to Adam and Eve is go forth and right through the scriptural narrative we are shown that God gives us other people not just for ourselves but for the flourishing of the nations. Look back with me. Remember I said the Psalms are a pair. So Psalm 128, fruitful vine, flourishing young olive trees. Psalm 127 tells us something in there. It says sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior of the sons born in one's youth. What an image. That your kids are not things that you mollycoddle or keep in the corner. That your kids are not possessions for your own entertainment. That family is actually given to you so that you can shoot them away into a future that you cannot and probably will not see. They aren't pets to entertain us. They aren't possessions for us to control. There aren't little fulfillment agents made, made for us to feel better about a youth we want to do over. There aren't meaning makers who fill the holes in our hearts. They are arrows that we let fly, sure and certain that God will direct their path. In his excellent book called Parenting, Paul Tripp said that there are essentially two types of active family building. One is called ownership, and the other is called ambassadorial or being an ambassador. 
ownership family building is shaped by what we want for and from our families. It tries to control them because it controls what we want for our families and it controls what we want from our families. That's not the biblical way of family, he suggests. Ambassadorial family making is not first about what we want for or from them. Rather, it is about what God has planned to do through them and for us to facilitate that in a way that sends them away. What an image. What an image. My little boy turned nine this week. Nine. I told him at eight I want to start dialing backwards because nine feels like ten and ten feels like a teenager and then it feels like he's gone. (laughs) Any other parents feel this way? And so I said, no, no, but it's your seventh birthday. Um, And that that made him mad in a way that made me realize, okay, he's still a little boy. Um, (laughs) But if I want to try to control that boy, if I want to wrap my identity up in him, if I want to do over on my youth through him, if I expect him to fulfill a hole in my heart, then I'm never going to let him go. I'm never going to let him fly. But if he's an arrow, then every passing birthday, all I'm doing is pulling that string just a little bit further back so that one day I can go, go for it, buddy. Wherever God leads you, go for it. Okay, families, gifts of God given to us as pictures, as places, as platforms. How are we doing? I want to leave us today with some really, really, really (laughs) practical input, okay? Because that that might be a bit highfalutin in terms of its imagery. Uh, Here's four pieces of practical input, and then we're going to celebrate a meal together as family. First one is this. Learn to be at peace. If all of that is true, then learn to be at peace with the family that you have. I know that's not going to be easy for some of you. I know because there's so much pain. Learn to be at peace with the family that you have. Ask God for help with that. You can trust him. He's placed you where you are. You can trust him. Ask him for help. But learn to be at peace with you and your story and with the people God has placed around you, even if he hasn't placed that nuclear sense of family around you. Learn to be at peace with that by asking him to show you how to build flourishing family units that don't look like that kind of tight family unit that we see in the suburbs. What does a biblical family unit look like in the life of the church? Forgive your parents. (laughs) Doesn't mean anything they did is okay. It just means you're determined to not be a ghost who lets what they did seep into another generation. Stop competing with your siblings. (laughs) It's so dumb. And trust God with your story, asking him for help. Secondly, so that's learn to be at peace with the family you have. Secondly, don't worship an idea of the family that you want. Your hope isn't in a vision of a family. You can open your hands to what God has for you. Friends, you don't actually control your destiny. You don't control the destiny of your kids. You set patterns for sure, but you can trust God with your future. If you, if you are a nuclear family unit, you've got a spouse and some kids, one of the ways that you can stop worshiping the idea of the family that you want is to actually just be the family that you are. Be places of peace and forgiveness and mercy and honesty. <laughs> And grace, you don't have to pretend. Don't play the game. Third one, ask God to help you to create pictures, places, and platforms. Now, regardless 
of, of where you are in life, of what your current family scenario looks like, all of us can ask God, say, okay, how do I create pictures of your love with the relationships around me? How do I create places of flourishing for people around me? And how do I create platforms of God's kingdom advance so that people can go from me emboldened by the gospel? How can I do that? And then lastly, friends, listen. Expand your idea of what family is. Let me rattle some cages as we close because we're going to communion and you'll forget because you'll just remember Jesus. Praise God. But Jared C. Wilson used a phrase um, that, that, that really stuck with me. He said that in America, we have perhaps in the suburbs began to worship in a cult of nuclear family that is actually unbiblical. Now, people have criticized that statement because they're going, oh, a nuclear family is what you build societies on. I agree. But when we make our families too small, we actually go against the biblical narrative. We go against Jesus' instruction of who is your brother and who is your sister. He says, your brother is anyone who does the will of the Father. Your sister, anyone who does the will of the Father. Your mother, the same. What is Jesus saying? This is your family. This is your family. Uh, Is this a place for flourishing for others? Is this a platform for kingdom advance? Is this a picture of God's love and mercy? You can do that in here regardless of who you have at home waiting for you. And so don't make your family too small. As you look around the room here today, you have a family. And so let's ask God how it is that we can live that out. Friends, ultimately, ultimately our only hope of this is through King Jesus, who, listen, this, this is amazing, who came as our king, but also as our brother, <laughs> the Bible tells us. And he won a place for us in a family that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And his spirit is breathed out into us to affirm what? We're in a family. That regardless of what our earthly family looks like, we have a family. And we get to be the kind of people who live out the principles of family in a much broader way. In a society that really needs some good pictures of family, right? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a family meal. That's how we're going to celebrate this. And we're going to say, well, here's my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. We're going to remember our brother Jesus, his body broken for us. We're going to drink and remember his blood shed for us. And we're going to ask, Holy Spirit, please remind me that I'm a beloved child and that I'm adopted into this new family. That's our only hope. Friends, if you've blown it with your earthly family, and today is an opportunity for mercy. If your earthly family blew it with you, today is an opportunity for grace and for the beginning of some kind of restoration. But you'll need to believe in the message of grace and kindness from our big brother Jesus. And you'll need to believe in the blood of the new covenant which gives us a chance for a new beginning. So in the generation that comes after us, they can look back and say, our ancestors shot us into the future. Not they were ghosts who haunted us with their sins. Wouldn't that be a beautiful multi-generational blessing for us to be able to believe? Let me pray and I'll give us some instructions for communion. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. I pray that we would believe it today. Lord, I pray for those who are deeply wounded and impacted in this place by family. I pray that you would allow them today to open their hands and to trust you that they can live a multi-generational legacy in some way 
of, of gospel encouragement and of flourishing. Lord, broaden our horizons. Help us to see a bigger vision of family today. To those who are holding on really, really tight, I pray that you would open their hands and that you would make us into the kind of people who paint pictures of your love, who create places of human flourishing and who build tall platforms so that we can shoot future arrows into the future of the kingdom come on earth. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for his body broken for us. As we eat the bread this morning, we remember him. Thank you that he's our brother. As we drink the cup this morning, remember his blood shed for us. Thank you that he's our savior. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would remind us that we are adopted now into a new family with brothers and sisters aplenty. Help us to be good ones. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the uh, the communion stewards can come.